Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. Rabbi. Last week, we took a glimpse into the dark hearts of Pharaoh and Haman. Pharaoh was someone who was presented with a truth that he refused to acknowledge refused to allow in because of the degree to which it would affect him and require him to make choices in his life. Haman, on the other hand, we never got a sense that he even considered any other possibility outside of the reality and the version of reality of which he was deeply and fully convinced. Pharaoh had to continually close his own heart against the stack of evidence that was coming to contradict his version of reality. Haman never had to close off his heart because we never get the sense that he was ever presented with or challenged by any conflict in terms of his version of the world. He was thoroughly and absolutely convinced of his own greatness and indispensability and nothing that is except Mordechai and Mordechai's refusal to bow down to him could challenge Haman. So, of course, Haman was left with no choice, at least in his own thinking, but to literally have Mordechai killed in order to remove the one person, the one element in the world that might suggest that he, Haman, was carrying around a false sense of the world. What marks these two men and makes the story of their hearts remarkable is not that they are imperfect humans. It's their insistence on not allowing other truths or truths to enter into their equation and their calculus when they're looking around and trying to understand the world. This is important because today we will turn our attention to a man in Tanakh, in the Bible, who made many mistakes. In fact, the most egregious mistake, at least as it appears in the surface reading of the text, is to have seen a woman whom he thought was beautiful, to have had her taken to his house, and then had sex with her, impregnated her, found out that he impregnated her and then had her husband brought to him. I am, of course, speaking about King David and the saga of King David and Bathsheba. And he had her husband, Uriah, brought to his palace. He tried to get Uriah to go and sleep with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who was now pregnant with David's child. When Uriah refused, even upon being plied, with drink by King David. King David then decided to have Uriah killed 
at war, which he did, and then married Batsheva. The rabbis of, a ta- of the Talmud present an explanation of this story in which Batsheva actually wasn't married to Oria at that time because King David required that all of his soldiers divorce their wives before they go out to war so that if they should be taken captive or whatever, then their wives could remarry rather than being stuck waiting to find out if their husbands are still alive or not, which is a frankly a beautiful idea in the sense that it is ultimately compassionate towards the woman to allow her to remarry according to Jewish law. But of course the reader of that passage in the Talmud gets a feeling that this is not quite a fabulous explanation for what's going on. Even if King David knew that, it certainly seems awful that he would use his power in order to uh, impregnate this woman and then would try to blame it on Oria and then have Oria killed for it. And yet, if we think about Pharaoh's approach to the heart, it would be useful for King David to have access to this explanation. It would allow him to perpetuate a sense of his own blamelessness. He could, in effect, keep his heart closed by continuing to convince himself of his own innocence in the midst of this shocking story. But he doesn't. And that's what I want to talk about today. In the second book of Shmuel, chapter 12, we see that God sends the prophet Natan to admonish King David about what he's done, but he doesn't do so directly. Rather, he tells King David, I wouldn't even say a parable, but a case that he would like King David to adjudicate. And this is a case of injustice where there's one man who has a lot of sheep and one man who has one sheep. And the man who has a lot of sheep takes the sheep of the man who only has one sheep and slaughters it and feeds it to his guest. Immediately, King David, in an outrage, says that man should die. At which point, Natan, the prophet, says, that man is you. This is what you did. You just judged your own case. And at that moment, King David, who could deny his responsibility, he could invoke that idea of the rabbis that really she was divorced, etc. He doesn't. He says, Chatati, I sinned. A longer record of his confession and his experience at that time is found in Psalm 51, where he says things like, Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll become pure. Wash me like snow, and I will become white again. Let me hear the sound of joy and of mirth. Let these bones that you have crushed, let them rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and erase all of my iniquity. And then the line that I want to focus on at this moment, King David says, Lave tahur birali Elohim. Create for me, God, a pure heart. Create for me a pure heart. This is a man who has done something wrong. Pharaoh did something wrong. Pharaoh closed his heart. David recognized the possibility of a closed heart and said, I don't want that. 
I understand that there's a temptation here to close my heart, to strengthen my resolve, to double down on the narratives that I use to justify the life that I live. But I don't want that. I'm aware of that temptation, and I'm asking you, God, says King David, I'm asking you to help me. I'm asking you to help me keep my heart open to the uncomfortable and inconvenient realities, to my own dark side, to see the damage and the evil that I'm capable of doing. Yes, me, also me. I can see that, and I want to close off to it. Of course, like anyone would, but I'm not going to, and I'm asking for this help from you, God, to help me stay open, even though it hurts, even though it's difficult. He doesn't want that kind of heart. Rather, as we read throughout the book of Psalms, for example, in Psalm 7, he talks about how God saves those who have a straight and fair heart. He talks about how he wishes to give gratitude to God with his whole heart. He talks about a heart that rejoices in God's salvation. He talks about in Psalm 16, my heart has been made glad. In Psalm 19, he wishes that God will find the meditations of David's heart to be satisfying and to find favor. And of course, it's easier to have Pharaoh's heart. Just shut it off. Look for an excuse to shut down. Convince yourself on scant evidence that you're right and you've always been right. And nothing gets to challenge you on that. Of course, that's easier. The path that King David is walking on is much more challenging. It's much more difficult. But he knows that's the kind of heart that he wants to have. So at this moment, when the prophet Nathan comes along and tells him, you messed up, thank God King David's heart response immediately is, I've sinned, and I want to be better. And I don't want to fall into that trap that's so tempting. And this willingness to walk the hard path of working the heart until it becomes a vehicle for connection and not an obstacle to connection. This willingness really is the beginning. And we're not expected to not make mistakes, but we are expected to not close our hearts when we do, to not close our hearts to ourselves, to parts of ourselves we don't want to look at, and to not close ourselves off to each other and to the reality that surrounds us and needs to get our attention. And if we walk that path and we come down and come back and come back and come back and open it again when it becomes closed and open it again when it becomes closed again and open it again and again and again when it becomes closed again and again and again, then ultimately our heart starts to stay more open. It starts to open wider. It starts to open more quickly. And eventually we can reach that level that King David describes in Psalm 109, where he says, Ki aniva evion anochi, I am poor and impoverished. Filibi chalal bekirbi, and my heart is empty within me. 
which for Rabbi Nachman, as we will discuss, is the ultimate level of heart, for a heart to be open, to be empty, to not be filled with the distraction and the obstacle and the ego. The ultimate heart for Rabbi Nachman is for the heart to be halal, to be empty, because then it can hold everything. It can hold all the pieces of us. It can hold all the things we've done and all the beautiful love that we want to give and also the dark and the frustration and the judgment and the mistakes and the stupidities and the foolishnesses. And it can hold all that. And we can learn to trust our heart because we know that it's not going to get carried away like Haman fully buying into the story of his heart we can see the stuff that our heart contains and we can also see around it. We can see the empty space, that halal, that space that surrounds all the stuff that's in our hearts. And we know not to take any one piece of what's in there too seriously or overly seriously or to take it as defining the entirety of what's happening. We always have a sense of that space. And in that space, we can listen to our hearts and respond to our hearts and have relationship with our hearts in a way that can be productive and beautiful, and alive, and generative, and life-giving, and growthful. Bezor Hashem.